The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. I'm Erin McCabe, and I'm the ministry director here at the Music Row location. And if I haven't met you yet, I really hope that I'll be able to meet you as soon as we're able to be together soon. And our staff is working really hard to put together a great plan so that everyone is safe, and um, and it's just a great time when we are able to be together once again. Um, I'm going to read today's scripture, which comes from John 4, 7 through 26. A woman from Samaria. Yes. Do it, should I do a new intro too? Good. I didn't. I didn't like what I said anyway. I didn't like what I said anyhow. Yeah. Hey. Yes. I can go. Good morning. I'm Erin McCabe, and I'm the ministry director here at the Music Row location. And if I haven't met you yet, I hope that I will be able to meet you when we're all together soon. Um, Our staff is working hard to come up with a plan to keep everyone safe and things going well once we are able to gather together again. Now I'm going to read today's scripture, which is John 4, 7 through 26. A woman from... Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one now have ne- the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Stacy Croft, and I'm the Music Row Pastor for Christ Presbyterian Church. And I uh, love having Aaron with us, who's on our staff, at, um, specifically at uh, Christ Pres Music Row. And um, I just loved making faces at her while she was reading that off camera. So any mistakes she had, I can blame on myself. Um, but anyway, it's good to, good to be with you all this morning. You know, I was riding in the car um, this week and on the radio, because um, I was actually able to go somewhere, uh, on the radio it was talking about what a watershed moment we're living in. And um, many people, not to insult your intelligence, but I know uh, the word watershed is probably a commonly used word, but where it really comes from is... Places like the Continental Divide in the United States, there are places where when rain falls, uh, it goes on one side or the other of the, say, the Rocky Mountains. <clears throat> and we've utilized that term watershed, meaning the water sheds to one side or another, really as a, as a way of saying this is a turning point. This is a turning point of history. And uh, it got me thinking about, yeah, we are definitely living in a watershed moment of history and, and time uh, for all of us. Uh, we're all going to remember. But it got me thinking about other turning points. Where were you when? <clears throat> Things like when 9-11 happened or uh, when the Challenger, uh, the, the terrible tragedy of the Challenger explosion. I called my dad and I asked, I said, it got me thinking even further in history. I said, you know, you were a little boy when World War II ended. What, what was that like? He was just a few years old. And, and I, he said, I don't remember much, but I remember uh, the news in 1945 when everything ended, that everyone was out on their lawns celebrating, just cheering, celebrating, yelling at the top of their lungs at the news that the war was over and the Allies had won. And that is a watershed moment. You know, news, I mean, imagine that. A news uh, that called for a reaction for them. The news that called for them to say, we now have freedom. You now have safety. The enemy has been defeated. That's what news does. It warrants a reaction. In fact, the word gospel, uh, maybe you've heard this before, but the word gospel isn't just a religious term. It actually was an ancient term that meant news. It just meant news that didn't warrant opinion, it warranted a reaction. And when it does, like the gospel of Jesus, it was a watershed moment. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that we are even read from, from this chapter of John. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that, that there are narrative accounts of what's called the gospel, the good news, the news of Jesus Christ's life. The pinnacle of the scriptures is that. And it's considered a watershed moment, particularly the life, 
death and resurrection of Jesus, similar to other watershed moments in history and time and space, it has a defining feature for all of our lives, but different and even more so. Instead of it being a historical moment we look into, the gospel of Jesus is about how history has come to us. It's about how it has come to change us. It's not so much about what that historical moment mattered necessarily, but how we mattered to God. And that's what the gospel means. And we get to zoom in and zero in on the life of a woman in John chapter 4 who actually had some religiosity, but her life was very different. It was a very different kind of life for her. And to have this watershed moment of the gospel, history, not just a moment that meant something important at a well, but that our whole entire life would be shaped by this. That's what worship is. Worship is the exuding of the impact of what has been, been done toward us and in us that we wrap our lives around. That's what worship is. And the gospel evokes that. It is a watershed moment. Because not so much are we worshiping, and this is what really defines our worship. And maybe that happens. Maybe you're even there this morning, you're watching, maybe you've watched several times before, and, and, and maybe you've uh, just kind of gone through the motions of worship, or listening to a sermon, or those kind of things along the way. But nothing like this time, being secluded in our homes, having to be separated from church, has evoked, what is real worship? What does it really mean? Does it mean we wrap our lives around how secure we are financially? Does it mean we wrap our lives around how safe and how maybe certain we've kept our distance in the right, correct way so that we're all healthy? What is worship? Is it that or is it something where God has actually come to us that we matter rather than what we've done? So we're going to look at this passage from the Gospel of John, which I love. John's accounts are so unique to me because he oftentimes will parallel a life and give such deep detail, rich detail about these different people. And in this particularly, we're going to look at what worship does. Worship is connected to what we know and actually who knows us. And uh, worship is really also connected to in- intimacy. It's deeply intimate. It is a deeply intimate thing. And finally, that it's incredibly transformational. Well, the first thing here is, is we see is a woman of Samaria came to draw water. The, the scene is kind of set. You know, after a long journey, Jesus had come um, through what was kind of an odd journey, in fact. Instead of going around a certain area where Jews and, and, um, and Samaritans, that obviously it's even spoken of, we're going to look at it for a second, didn't get along, he decides to go straight through. Instead of taking the road around it, he goes straight through it. And he's weary, and it's noon, and he's thirsty. So he decides he's going to go to a well that was obviously visited by many Samaritans to draw water. It was a deep well. It was probably about 100 feet, maybe even more, and possibly even more by that time. It was dug in a very historical way and even known to the Samaritans as a well that Jacob, the father of uh, both Jewish people and Samaritans, that they both held that, uh, this well. 
But what's interesting, this passage comes right after a maybe more similar and familiar passage to many of you. If, if you know John 3.16, so the chapter John right, 3 right before this one is about Nicodemus, this religious leader. And you would think in that passage, this is where Jesus feels most comfortable talking about worship. Talking about what it's like to actually worship God. He actually entertains that discussion. But we have another parallel of a completely different person in a different race, religion, and ideology, and even lifestyle than this religious Pharisee in chapter 3. It really evokes what is worship? What is it? Jews hated Samaritans. See, Samaritans, uh, because after the Assyrian conquering, uh, they resettled with, these are Jews that resettled with the Assyrians. So instead of separating themselves, they settled with them and they became racially and religiously impure. They're considered second-class citizens. Not to mention, this was a woman and women in that time were considered second-class. So not only did she have something against her for being Samaritan uh, by losing racial and religious purity, according to the Jews, she was also a woman who was uneducated and seen in this way, we see more of her life. But in this passage, what I love, and I've read this for years, but what always startles me isn't how uncomfortable Jesus is. He's actually not at all. It's actually how uncomfortable she is. She's uncomfortable. And she begins to try and talk to him about what she knows. Jesus, being a Jew, says, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, so he was alone. And the Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, just as what we just talked about. But Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So you have nothing to draw water. Well, the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And she begins to express a little bit about what she knows. Even further down in this passage, she says, uh, she begins to talk about uh, that the Messiah will be coming. I know that the Messiah is coming. And that for them, the Messiah was called the Tahib, a converter. Somebody who was going to be a prophet to tell. A little different than the idea of this Messiah that the Jews had. This one was a prophet who held to the first five books of the Bible. And really could express prophetically who they were. But the more she began talking about worship, the more Jesus goes beyond it. It's more than just what she knows. Because I think that that's what happens when we get to talking about worship. When we get to talking about it, it can become this religious activity. It can be something we just do. What do we just know? Let me pull out of my head. Let me just say everything I know about God. And that's what worship is. Uh, how, do we, how do we have an informational connection with him? How do we try and connect to him in that way? But the largest piece of Christianity is based on the fact that God reveals himself to us. It's the fact that this whole point, she's uncomfortable. She's in a position of saying these things because Jesus has come to her. Just as you even looked at last week in a passage in Mark about Jesus leading the disciples. He actually leads them into the storm. Jesus is leading this conversation. He leads himself. He positions himself in one of the most racial, religious, and even in some ways um, compromising physically as the disciples come back and say they're not marveling he's talking to a Samaritan. They're marveling he's talking to a woman. 
because he's seeking her out. He is seeking true worshipers to worship him. Notice that. This is what's beautiful about verse 19. It says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. And we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such worshipers to worship him. That's worship. I remember when I was uh, younger, my Bible study leader in middle school, who was a great kind of adventurous guy, he, he was, he'd teach us the Bible and he'd teach it in such uh, colorful ways. He, he did a trip overseas to um, Germany and Berlin. And this is years ago when the Berlin Wall was still just um, coming down. The Berlin Wall was set in, the 19, in 1961 to separate uh, in Berlin, um, in Germany, East and West Germany. The, the Eastern Communist side of Germany was just continually bothered by the prosperous West side and people fleeing from their area. So they built this enormous wall. And my Bible study leader had brought back for us, as the wall had come down in, in the uh, 89, tells you uh, something about my Bible study days, a piece of the Berlin Wall. So I actually have a piece of this wall that came down. He would tell us stories about it and how magnificent it was watching it be torn down and people taking sledgehammers to it and, and watching it. But oftentimes, though, I think that it would be easy for me to sit here and describe how great it was, what an event it was. The Berlin Wall was an amazing event of history. Watershed moment, just like we talked about. I got a piece of it right here, right? But what would be the difference between me talking about a piece I have of the Berlin Wall and actually having someone from Berlin, Germany, come and stand and tell you what that wall coming down meant to them? A huge difference. There's a difference between me trying to evoke something in history to say, what a great event, what, something I try and connect to, rather than history impacting the person. See, that's the difference here. It's, it's not about religiosity where we try and connect to something historically. We're trying to, you know, have, our, have ourselves evoked. And that's what I think we can feel like when we come to worship. We can try and evoke ourselves into this to try and meet with God and feel like we can be with him. But sometimes it just doesn't feel like that. Sometimes we come and it feels dry or we feel distant. Just as she feels like she has to go to this well over and over and over. It feels like we're coming back to try and draw something out. But what really worship is, is not about us trying to find a mark in history, but how history has actually marked us. See, the, the tenet of Christianity is that the teachings of Christianity drive the um, the, the events of Christianity actually drive the teachings rather than the teachings driving the events. It's that the fact that God acts and then we react. It's that God comes in, he seeks, he wants, it's not about us trying to know him so much as that he has already made himself known. Christianity turns everything on its head. That's what makes worship worship. 
And I think it's easy, and I, I feel this way, I'm sure you all do too, that I often come feeling like I have that piece of, the, piece of Christianity, like the piece of the wall. And I try to evoke myself, and I, I try and put myself in the position to study the Bible, or sing songs, or read a creed, or uh, try and speak it, or be in a circle where we can talk about it. And yet I'm forgetting that it's not about what I can grab onto. It's not about what I can know. It's about what who knows me. It's about how history has come and marked me. Just like she is like that person in Berlin. So who's, who's receiving the, the Tahib, the converter, the Messiah coming to her. And you see this confusion. You see her confusion right at the beginning. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for me, uh, a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And this, this dialogue starts happening about water. <laughs> and again, this is a parallel very similar to John chapter 3. Because in John 3, Jesus starts talking to Nicodemus. Now, you would think Nicodemus would know the difference between things that are of earth and things that are of heaven. You would think. But he's just as confused. There's supposed to be this parallel in John 3 of even a religious Pharisee and an opposite religiosity person of the outside who would be racially and religiously of the outside not a part of this. And that there's a confusion. She's coming bruised. We hear about her life, her relationships, her sexual history. And she's coming into this well bruised, battered thirsty and yet there's this deep confusion about it well Jesus if you have this water why don't you give it to me that way I don't have to ever come to this well again that makes the most sense I mean that would be the nicest thing ever I mean even even though you're a Jew you have this great water I mean that would work Jesus is wanting to make this connection it's not a cliche it can sound like it but it's not a cliche that Jesus is making a parallel to her thirst being something that can never be quenched because she keeps going back to what is temporal, what is of earth, what is here, what can I grasp onto that's going to try and quench the deepest parts of me to connect to God. It's the same as Nicodemus. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a religious person or somebody who is anti-religious or maybe even just kind of doing your own thing and religion is just a part of your life. You think there's a higher power, maybe there's a God. Jesus is trying to get to the point that we all are trying to seek something of earth to quench what only can be quenched eternally. One of my favorite movies based on a true story um, of all time is what's called Chariots of Fire. It's based on the Paris Olympics of 1924. Great movie. Uh, it's incredibly written, incredibly done. And there are even parts of that movie that I've looked up. Um, I'm a huge track guy. I enjoyed track running and even in college and so that was a kind of a movie that stirred my heart and mind and it was about a, a man named Eric Little who uh, a Scotsman uh, became, later became a missionary and Harold Abrams who was uh, a man um, who was just had a, a longing to prove himself uh, even from a young age in college and they meet one another uh, in their training for the Olympics and you get to watch their training you get to watch them to the point of what, what, what really fuels one of them? What will, he, what will quench that desire that they have? And <clears throat> there's a point where Harold Abrams, in the most honest uh, 
portion where he's about to run in the Olympics. He's about to run the, the 100, which was his race, 100 sprint. And he's talking to his trainer who's worked with him for, forever, just the right steps, calculating everything so he can just outpace everybody, just the right things. And he looks at him and says the most honest thing. He says, now in one hour time, I'm going to be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and I'll look down that lonely corridor, only four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? That quote from Harold is so rich to me because he's honestly saying he has all come to that point. Everything he's worked on, that's worship. Everything he's wrapped his time around, everything he's wrapped his energy around, his anger, his fear, his longings, his wanting to be higher and above, it's to justify his existence in this one thing. And after he finishes, and you see him finish that race, you hear the music, but you see in his face go slack. And you see that it just is only a moment. I've gotten to even watch... I've loved it, just like I'm sure many of you. Just so many great ESPN documentaries lately, especially the one The Last Dance with the Chicago Bulls, which is a huge era for me to watch the NBA and Michael Jordan. And just to hear from every one of the athletes on the team the constant provoking of the next season, the next game, the next championship, and just feeling like it just never quite satisfies there's a quenching, there's a thirst in all of us and a, and a quenching that we're longing for. And we all look for it. It's everywhere. It's the question, what do you drink from to try and gain that? And that's what worship is. Jesus is connecting worship to that to say, whatever we worship is where we go back to over and over and over to quench that thirst. It could be a relationship. It could be business. It could be some sort of work. It could be something that you feel right now. It could be the security you feel of, of whatever it is in this time. But what do you go to to quench your thirst? Because it's there and it's a temporal thirst, but it's supposed to be quenched by something eternal. This is why Jesus answers about spring of water welling up to eternal life, that there's something that he provides that nothing else can that will keep you from knowing that you, ha you can find it anywhere else. It's that he gives it. It's something he does it. But, but here's the question. What about if you don't feel close to God, right? What about those moments you come to worship and you're not? Is worship still happening? Does worship happen when you come and you feel angry at God because, you know what, my entire life savings is wiped out. I'm angry at God because, and as I've heard from some people, I'm angry at God because he's taken my family away or he's taken someone I love dearly away, possibly even has died during this season of the pandemic. How does worship happen then? See, if we base worship, Jesus isn't saying he's giving you something. It's you're just going to feel this overwhelming experience all the time. That's not what the well is because that's what we think it is. We think it's an experience like a piece of the wall. 
That's just going to, to be a story to be told. And we just go visit it every now and then and we can revisit that story. It's not. It's history coming to us. It's the fact that Jesus comes to us. Worship happens even when you don't open your mouth. I have spent years feeling like that, where I've come to worships, even as a pastor, as I've gone through even decades I can think of, of, of struggle, dry. I mean, even the language, think about it. This is why it's used here. And, and you can read in the Psalms over and over of, of the dryness. Where I've come to God and I've said, God, what, where are you? And I just doesn't feel, I don't feel connected to him. There's some sort of like disconnect in my emotions or my mind or whatever it is in affections. But if we base worship on that, we're missing what it means to be quenched. I mean, m- many people have talked about, you know, and I, I, I'll say this. I, this has been fascinating for me during this pandemic. Because I really think it's created in us more of who we already were. And I feel like I've talked about this with a, a number of you. Where if we were anxious before the pandemic hit, it just exacerbated that. If we were uh, worried about something in life, be it job, family, something else, it exacerbated that. If we had an an irritation with a spouse or a friend, it's only exacerbated that. If we felt lonely, man, we've already, we've hit the ceiling on loneliness. But here's the question is, is, if you were already there, God isn't wanting you to come back. My question is, how are we going to come back? I'm curious what it's going to be like when this lifts, when we decide a date and we give it to you and we say, hey, we're going to open the doors, we're going to have a certain number of people. Some of you are going to still be able to watch live stream, however we do that. I don't know how it's going to work. we got a lot of plans involved, a lot of things, as Aaron even mentioned. But can we be honest for a moment? Can we just be honest and say... Worship isn't about us just having the experience. It's about feeling what we've been feeling. And I, Lord, pray that many of you have felt the longing to be together and be with God. And I pray that even during this time, that God has stirred in you a longing to be with him. That means being with him no matter what it feels like or sounds like or looks like. Worship isn't defined by you coming and feeling exuberance. That's not just worship. If it was, then that's what we'd all be doing. Worship is defined by us having, meeting the Lord Jesus. And that means coming to him probably crying, probably angry. You know what? Many of us are going to probably come in a mask. We're going to come and music may sound different. Maybe the, maybe the sanctuary feels different. Maybe the chapel, maybe outdoors, wherever we meet, it's going to feel different. But worship can't be defined by the experience. It can't be defined by how we feel. Otherwise, then worship is just as helpful as, a, as waves coming up and back on a shore. And so I want to appeal to you wherever you are. I, I don't even know if I was planning on doing this. I want to appeal to you. Wherever you are with the Lord Jesus, that whatever has happened during this pandemic about evoking what you really worship in light of maybe, and maybe you're watching and you would say, I don't know if I'm a Christian. To ask, what do you really seek 
to quench your thirst? What do you really drink in? And that is what you really worship. And what Jesus is saying, I can give you something. I can actually give you a resource that no matter where you go, that no matter what you experience, what you encounter, that you are always connected, always with me, always known, always loved. And you don't have to hang on to some piece of it. You can have history come into your life. See, that's what it does to her. History reveals and worship about our, her intimacy. I mean, why, why in the world does Jesus take this turn? Why does he say, go call your husband and come here? I mean, what a... If many of you are reading and maybe you kind of think, whoa, that gets a little bit dicey. Why would Jesus move from talking about, okay, we can talk about quenching and that. Why does he turn from that to say, hey, go call your husband and start to put his finger right on one of the most shameful, painful, sexual, isolated places of your life? It's because worship isn't anything about out here. We've made worship something that we try and experience when we feel great. But it is deeply connected to the, what we love and how we love. It's deeply connected to the most intimate parts of us. It's, worship gets personal. Worship gets personal in your life. It doesn't leave things unturned. It, it, it gets to the deepest core questions of you. And if it isn't, and if it hasn't, or maybe it hasn't in a while, maybe we need to revisit what worship is. That worship gets to the places where you don't want the questions to be asked. And why? Because it really asks you, what is worthy and valuable? That's actually what the word worship mean, it means. It means worth-ship. <laughs> it's used to describe what you actually hold worthy and valuable. And usually what that is is where you give your most intimate parts the most deep, intimate parts of you. Jesus isn't trying to be a jerk. He's not trying to also call her out. He's trying to say, let worship really, let's talk about, we, we can talk about this mountain or that mountain or this well and what you really need, but really what's being quenched is the deepest intimacy and where it really is connected. We worship what we most are deepest intimately to. A deep friend of mine from uh, the past, he's a, a former pastor. He was at a, a seminar actually with someone else for, he went with for a drug addiction. And he was talking to the counselor afterwards and, and the counselor looked at him and, and as they were talking about what he cared about most and he said, you know, it's, it's good to see this talking about what gods are and kind of started getting personal in his life and the counselor looked at him and said oh your God isn't the God of the Bible from everything you're saying to me your God is actually drugs and to his astonishment he stepped back and he in that moment was known he was exposed that he really did have an addiction and from that point on had moved then moved into more of a, because he was exposed, his worship began to be transformed. Before it was, he was even a pastor teaching worship, showing everybody how to worship. But it wasn't until he was exposed that he really got worship so he could worship. 
And one of the deepest things I know we're afraid of is somebody asking this question. It's, hey, go call your husband. Saying something to us in that way. But what Jesus does when we worship him, he gets personal. He gets to the deepest parts of us. Because most all religions look to the major element of worship with God as a bargaining chip. I'll come bring you my tribute. You kind of give me what I need. And we'll kind of do this bargaining thing. But Jesus says, if you want to know worship, if you really want your life to be transformed... I need to get to the deepest, most intimate parts where you think it is unsafe and you are unwelcome. Where there's no way that you think you could come into a place of worship and actually bring worship. If you were really exposed. I remember when I was a campus minister, I had a, an intern. And uh, as we trained you know, interns to talk to students and walk with them, there's oftentimes a question, maybe this has happened with you, where... Somebody says, um, you know, if you knew, if you were sitting with them, you're trying to encourage them about the good news and, and about grace and, um, and God's love and forgiveness. And you say something in effect of, you know, if you knew my life, you know, then you know this. Well, she sits down with this specific student, student and says, hey, you know, I know it's hard, but if you knew my life, you, you wouldn't want me to be your intern. I mean, this is why we need grace. And the student literally looked and said, gosh, well, maybe you the things you're going on in your life you shouldn't be my intern I mean and isn't that what we fear the most (laughs) somebody looking back at us and saying you really are a shame you really are a sham you really aren't all you're cracked up to be you know Jesus does to her he calls her out so he can show her what true love is. Why does she keep going back to this well over and over? Because it's a picture of her going back to these relationships over and over and over and over. Because Jesus isn't any other God. He, he doesn't barter. He knows that if you want to really know what it means to have intimacy and love, true intimacy, not counterfeit intimacy, true intimacy... It only happens when worship goes to the deepest, shameful, most uncomfortable places that you could never believe anyone, more or less God, would let you be loved. Especially if you come into a church. Worship isn't defined just on Sunday. It starts on Sunday and it echoes into the week. So that then then do we leave these doors? And here's another question for us. Do we leave these doors and then try and cover our shame all over again, just like we tried to do in these doors? If there's one thing that's happened that happens in this passage, I think is hilarious, is the woman says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> and I read that almost as if she's trying to like bring it back to, well, let's bring it back to like some sort of professional kind of relationship. But Jesus is not going to have it. You thought this is worship but worship is about the father seeking even you he's not talking about some jewish pharisee like nicodemus this is john 4 he's talking to a samaritan woman who has a sexually sordid past which some of the most shameful things in that time and our time and yet he's saying the father seeks you because he comes to seek her And intimacy and worship are intimately tied because the incarnation of Jesus changes. You know what happens after this? After this passage, you don't see it here because we stopped reading at a certain point. 
Here's what's amazing. After this, it says that the, just then in verse 27, the disciples came back and marveled that he was talking to this woman and saying, what's going on? They're thinking, what is, why is he doing this? Because the only way she would know that the father seeks is if the father sends the son in flesh. See, this is how worship in Christianity is so different. The gospel, the good news is electric. It's different. It's history coming to us in flesh of Jesus. I, I miss the uh, old Jimmy Fallon, but I know on Jimmy Fallon, he, uh, at one point, this is earlier in his uh, career, he used to go out on the street and do stuff, you know, now no one's on the street. <laughs> but he, uh, at one point when uh, Robinson Cano, who was a, a player for the Yankees, was traded, big-time player. He thought he'd do a funny gag, and he went out on the street with a cardboard cutout of Robinson Cano. And he brought all these people up to say, hey, Robinson Cano, who's on the Mariners now, he's coming back, he's going to be playing in Yankee Stadium, huge player. Anything you want to say to him, Yankee fan, come on up. Yeah, and they interview, and they would just scream at this thing. I mean, they would yell, can't believe you left us for more money. They would say the horrible things, bleeped out things, everything. And then, in brilliant fashion, right behind the cutout, Robinson Cano steps out just to smile and say, hey, and the faces change. The people go, Robbie, you know, they go hug him. They're like, I can't believe you. And it was genius. I mean, their whole countenance was different. Why? Because the flesh changed it all. It brought out their real love for him. It brought out things that they could actually probably bring to him if they were just sitting with him. But it changed in genius fashion by Jimmy Fallon by bringing and sending the real Cano to their face. It transforms. And you know what happens to this woman? Here's what happens to her. Here's what we didn't read. Listen to what this is. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? How does worship transform us? How does it move from being a piece of the wall or a piece of history to history transforming us? It, it just like that. It's that this one steps into flesh and comes into our life. And so much so that a woman who is defined by coming to this well leaves her jar and is so free from her exposure that she says to the entire population that knows how many husbands she have already, it's not a big town, they know everything about her. All the shameful things. And she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. How could we feel so free to say, I am this exposed all my shame is seen by this person. And yet I'm this loved. That's worship. That's what it means to worship. That's what it means to live in worship. She's not going to a synagogue. She's leaving from Jesus to go to the town. And you know what? It, from her exposure, from her leaving the jar, from that, John gives us that sweet illustration from leaving the jar and shouting from the rooftops, I, he knows me. She doesn't have to say what she's done. She just says she's known by a man who told everything she ever did. 
but she lives her worship out. That's worship. It transforms the town. It even says that people believed her of this other camp that were not Jews and came to faith through her. Praise be to God. This is worship. And this is the God we worship and serve. Let me pray for us. God, how do we have such an open life of freedom? Freedom from the enemy. Freedom to go out on the front lawn even. And feel as though this watershed moment of the gospel has brought us to safety. Has defeated the enemy. Has gives us celebration, gives us a real self to talk about our own hearts before you, to maybe not feel even like worship is easy, but that we are known and in relationship with you, that is worship. Thank you for sending Jesus to bring us into worship. That we're not clamoring or climbing or trying to get to you in heaven on some ladder. God, you came down to us. And we can bring our true self to you because you know it. You expose it because you want us to know there's a deeper intimacy that goes far beyond any shame or anything that we look for to try and quench that shame on this earth. Help us know that worship now. We pray and we beg this of you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me sing our doxology for us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Before we receive our benediction, just know that um, after this series, we're actually starting a new series next Sunday on the Psalms of Ascent. It's the Psalms that are uh, from Psalm 120 to 134 that talk about the rich experience of worship as people would pilgrimage and go up to Jerusalem to worship. Really looking forward to that series with you over the next several weeks in summer. And I hope you all are doing well. Now raise your hands in your hearts if you would like to receive God's benediction. Now may that one who knows every part of us, the one who has richly come in flesh to experience us, to know us, to know what we worship and to change our intimacy so that we would love him. Because he says, I who speak to you am he. Send us out now and forever. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.